0: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Podside Picnic. This is Connor. As always, I am with the host that you really tune in for, that being Pete. And we're doing one of our more relaxed recording sessions today because we're discussing a, uh, a text, a movie, whatever you want to call it. A that text. <laughs> I don't think that either of us takes super seriously, but we figured people might want to hear us dissect, maybe. And that is Dark Phoenix. Uh, and actually, a few seconds ago, so you don't know what that's about. That's an X-Men movie. It's got Santa Stark, also known as Sophie Turner, um, is Jean Grey in her Dark Phoenix form, which I'm sure we'll get into some of the backstory about what that means. But it's the last Fox-produced X-Men. They've been doing X-Men movies for almost two decades at this point. Uh, and I guess they're closing out that. And I guess, is he going to take it over? Who cares? Anyway, uh, I cut Pete off a few seconds ago because he wanted to share something he learned, and I said, let's do it on air. So, Pete, what did you want to say about Dark Phoenix?
1: Well, uh, Dark Phoenix was going to come out for Valentine's Day, and uh, James Cameron raised a big stink because he wanted to push another movie out at that time. Oh, God. (laughs) Alita Battle Angel. (laughs) (laughs) Our favorite
0: movie is colliding. This is great. Oh, yeah. Just, like, everybody loses, man. <laughs> wow. Okay, so that, that is a really interesting tidbit, actually. Um, because one thing that's interesting about Dark Phoenix is it got a huge amount of marketing, at least in the precincts where I hang out, whether it's—maybe it's just the specific small amount of TV that I watch or the movies I see in theaters, but whatever it is, I saw a lot of marketing for this movie, and it's all over New York cabs right now. So I naturally assumed— that this would be another case where a superhero movie with a big budget and big name actors would inherently do numbers and would get decent reviews because they almost all seem to now. That is not the case. This movie has relatively bombed at the box office. I think it had the worst opening of any X-Men movie ever, which is pretty impressive, honestly. And uh, it's got like a 22% of Rotten Tomatoes. It's been getting panned. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, I think... I certainly liked it probably more than a lot of critics did. In in certain ways, I don't know if you did, but I mean, it's it's probably the worst reviewed movie we've addressed on the show, um, at least of like new releases.
1: Yeah, so far, like wait till we get to Battlefield Earth, buddy.
0: <laughs> right. Well, we'll do some real stinker, some stinker uh, kind of anti classic sci fi. But this is the yeah, this is probably the worst pre- uh, received new release we've done. And uh, I mean, just to jump right into it, I. I can sort of see why that is. I would say this movie didn't strike me as particularly dumber than a lot of superhero movies. I liked it more than Captain Marvel, which is an obvious point of comparison because both have that sort of hollow, vaguely fascistic girl power marketing where it's like, look, an overpowering and terrifying woman, that must be feminist somehow, right? Girls uh, rock. Girls rock. Exactly. <laughs> uh, it's. but I liked it better than Captain Marvel. That might just be my biases. Uh I mean, I'm sure Pete has plenty to say. I will I will go ahead and plant my flag and say the one thing that I most liked about it is I really like the version of Charles Xavier that it has, played by James McAvoy. who's a very fine British actor. Uh, and basically, in this particular story, he is a transparently very arrogant and megalomaniacal rich drunk who thinks that he's got it all figured out because he's managed to suck up to the president. And that is a perfect character for our moment. I really appreciated that depiction of Xavier. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I didn't think of it in quite those terms, but that's very funny, man. Um, I, there were a couple of things that very much interested me in this movie. Uh, the one is if you're not familiar with the whole concept of the Dark Phoenix, well, you've probably been living in a, ca- in a cave because they've already taken a stab at this once in the theater, But in the comics, it was a multi-story arc and a really big deal. The idea that Gene Grey dies, gets infested with this otherworldly energy and goes from somebody who can pick a lock from a distance to being able to like crack the Earth's crust with a thought. And it's this slow build-up where her emotions get out of control and they become more and more reliant upon her and she becomes less and less invested in the things she's supposed to be invested in. It's a slow build. And you can't slow build a movie, at least, like, Well, okay, that is an exaggeration. But I think you know what I'm saying. Like Doing the slow arc of character change that you would need to take someone who's insecure about themselves and have them turn into a megalomaniacal monster that can barely hold on to their feelings and fitting that into an hour and 45 minutes, challenge. And I don't think it's a challenge that the Fox studios were up for. So walking into this movie... One of the things I enjoyed was the absolute bone deep certainty that the people creating this were sticking their fork in the toaster
0: because I knew there was no way they could do this right and sure enough they electrocuted themselves and it was fun to watch. Well I think you raised a lot of interesting points just about how you would actually tell this story in a single movie arc. Um, it, it, this movie felt short. I said that when I left the theater. It felt oddly short because there isn't part of what's sacrificed is there isn't really a moment. Where you see how awesome and overpowering her powers really is. She does things like destroy some police helicopters or army helicopters, whatever. She like messes up a train. These are things that like Magneto can basically do for the X Men. Yeah, so they're all the not, time. Right. They're not like, oh my gosh, she's gonna blow up the earth kind of level of stuff. So that was lacking. And also, in order to give to build the character, or order to give this character some heft, they make it about her bat her origin story with her parents, and we meet the father that essentially rejected her because she caused this accident with her powers when she was a kid, rejected her and gave her to Charles Xavier. And that's meant to be dramatic and interesting and give her some something to resent. And like it does, you know, it's true that Xavier was being again, very arrogant and and arguably misguided in the way he handled that, and that's shown perfectly fine. Uh, it's, you know, her dad is kind of a total zero. Like he finds out his daughter has these issues. He gives up on her and that's that he's very interesting. It also runs the risk. I'm going to be woke here and say it runs the risk of making this into a story about a woman who can't control her emotions because she has daddy issues, which is like, uh, yeah, it's dangerous. I think it's, I think you're flirting with some really st- stupid shit when you do that. Um, <laughs> Well, and- you, you're touching on something really important here.
1: You're trying; they're trying to take this story, the story of the Dark Phoenix, and make it about feminism, and that is fundamentally a bad idea because you're talking about a woman who gets in touch with inner power and completely loses control and needs to be put down like a dog. Girls rock, right?
0: Yeah, it's very hard to turn this into like uh, into any kind of feminist parable. And again, the usual caveat being like. Us as two dudes, like we're not the the arbors. What is it in feminists? But I do think that it's fair to say, as in the case of Captain Marvel, this is just a very hollow de- uh, depiction of someone who happens to be a woman. But partly because, but part of the key point is like her power is it's like intergalactic and otherworldly that she gets from this like. This force floating around the universe That is not really fleshed out Which is fine I don't care about that It's kind of a MacGuffin Who cares yeah. But like It's it, an eternity crystal Or
1: whatever the hell They were using over On the other side of Marvel You know
0: Yeah whatever Like if they'd have made it A big gem And
1: put it in her forehead They could have just Shoved her right into the uh, it, The wars
0: Yeah so like Alright whatever It is whatever it is But the point is like It, it dehumanizes her it, just, it, it makes her powerful But also makes her less human And so then to like say We're gonna market this As like Somehow being about uh, Santa Starks, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, uh, whatever. It's like, well, I mean, there's the, the climactic scene. She says like, like what the, one of the bad guys says to her, like your emotions make you weak. She's like, no, my emotions make me powerful. The point being that she's finally come all the way around and has realized that her love for the X-Men and stuff for her, for her friends is like what makes her powerful or whatever. Like, okay, I kind of get it. It's pat, it's trite, but like, it, it sort of makes sense. But it's like, again, there's just, there's no real point to it other than that she becomes way too powerful, dredges up her past, and then has to cope with it. Spoiler alert, by self-destructing, basically. And then it's over. There's no more Fox X-Men movies. No more Bender and James McAvoy and the rest of them in these movies. So, like, okay. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, it it felt, all felt very empty. Yeah. And, I, and that's when I say it's very empty, I think that's why I enjoy the, char- the Xavier character, because at least in that case, you have a character who is showing a kind of emptiness that is very important in our world. That is a sort of like smug, self congratulatory rich guy who thinks he's got it all figured out, uh, lives in the greater New York area, tries to act all cultured and stuff, but is really, again, just a lonely drunk who's messed up a lot of stuff. So <laughs> <laughs> that's wonderful. Uh, can we can we talk a little
1: bit about uh uh mutants in in Mar- the Marvel universe and what differentiates them and what makes all of this so weird to me? Uh, so like when we're talking about the X Men arc, like in the comics at least, one of the things that makes it something that a like a thirteen year old boy reading comic books at the library can relate to is. These people are freaks. They have abilities and things that make them special, but the same things that make them special make them stand out and make them distrusted and hated by other people. And that's always been the appeal of the X-Men. So the idea that you know, you would, you would uh, uh, you know, have these powers, but you need a place to hide away, and that you were desperately trying to pass, and you couldn't most of the time, like that's what connects and it connects to especially to adolescents on a number of levels that I think are really interesting but they played with that this time and they also screwed it up so first they played with it where connor was talking about when uh, Xavier had made all these sacrifices and moved things to the point where people were looking at the X-Men as superheroes like they had they literally had like an X-Men phone At at Xavier's mansion where he could pick it up and talk to the president. I mean, like, holy crap. Like, was that a good example of them trying to move away from, you know, being in Freaksville? But the other thing is... By going with Dark Phoenix the way they did and having them arc up, they essentially disprove their whole point. Because the, the point of the movies, the point of the comics is these people may be different, they may be special, but fundamentally, they're human like you and me, and we should accept them. That, you know, we, we need to learn, embrace each other's differences, yada, yada, yada. I wouldn't embrace these people's differences. Like, holy crap, are they dangerous? I mean, like, even the most innocent of the X-Men and their opponents in this were basically on a murder spree in the middle of New York. And all I could think when the police showed up to try and shove them into vans and put them someplace where they couldn't hurt people was, thank God. And that's not a normal reaction to me. It's like when I'm hoping for government
0: incarceration without trial, things have
1: gone to a bad spot.
0: Right. Well, maybe it's just your Gen X or 9-11 brain. No, I'm just kidding. Um,
1: <laughs> you know, I was like, uh, if he is going to cancel me, this is the
0: moment. <laughs> well, I, I, I want to unpack that a bit, actually, because it, it gets into something that I wanted to talk about with this movie, which is, yes, they get seized by, you know, the classic like dark clad SWAT team. Uh, guys that are always showing up in big budget movies now. And I think the last one we reviewed, Shazam, part of the mercy of Shazam is that it has a much older school depiction of state power where it's just, like, inept Philly cops who, like, mean well and don't really do much and, like, they're just, like, you know, boring, inept civil servants. Whereas in so many of these movies now you have, like, overwhelming shows of post-9-11, like, security, state power, you know. Body armor, SWAT teams everywhere, special forces, all that stuff. And this movie engages in some of that um, when the mutants get arrested and like put on this special armored train that, of course, you know, gets destroyed and all this stuff. But what bothered me about it was not so much that there was arguably a case for them to be, you know, arrested and brutalized like this, because, yeah, at that instance, you could make a case for it, honestly. But. What bothered me was that the movie then worked very hard to do what all of these big-budget movies or most of them do in this era of, you know, having to valorize the security state and defense contractors—that whole massive edifice of imperial state power we live under, where it's like they're being held captive by these SWAT team guys, and they're like, and then the bad guys start to come in there, like you have to let us go, like just let the mutants go so we can help you. And at a certain point, a certain breaking point, the, these guys do let the mutants go, and then they all fight together. And there's even a moment where Nightcrawler, uh, there's this guy who, while they were like locked up, was saying, "My son used to be a big fan of yours." Kind of ironically, and then this guy gets killed, and Nightcrawler is sad, and we're supposed to care. Then it's like, okay, so the faceless, you know, mutant ICE essentially agent got killed, and now you're really upset. Like it's like we're working again. We're working overtime here to sort of valorize and justify that that expression of incredible state power that's, that that seems to crop up over and over again in these big-budget movies. And I find that, frankly, I mean, it's not a leap at all to say that it's sinister, and I really did not appreciate that about Dark oh. Phoenix. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Well, I mean,
1: it's, it's a combination of two things that should never be paired together, as far as I'm concerned. It is sinister, and it is boring. Yes, very well said. Ugh. Yeah, I, you know... I, in some ways I should feel bad because the idea of everything getting, getting uh, absorbed into the larger Disney world is a really depressing thing. But seeing this stretch of movies come to an end isn't the most disappointing thing that's ever happened to me.
0: Yeah. I just, I, go ahead. No, I suspect that Marvel, I suspect that Marvel with these actors, cause it is a good cast. Uh, McAvoy, yeah. you have Fast playing Magneto. You have a few good younger actors playing various X-Men. Jennifer Lawrence got killed. Uh, that was like there was like a moment where I was like, well, th- that's funny if they were continuing these movies because they just saved themselves a lot of money right there. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> um, they have a lot of good actors. Being the point being, and, and I think that a, a lot of Marvel scripts at least would have done a better job with that. I'll give, I'll give that to Marvel at least. Um, it's definitely possible to imagine this being done in a better well, way. Than here, so there's yeah, a should not. discussion here too. Like, um, I was, I was uh, driving
1: home from the theater with my partner. And, you know, we were talking about it and she was like, well, you know, something I wasn't tracking and she tracks everything. So I'm like, what the hell? So I'm like, yeah, tell me more. And she's like, well, you know, the blue one, Mystique. And I'm like, yeah, Jennifer Lawrence. And she's like, well, you know, in this, she'd been working with with uh, Xavier for years. And like, wasn't she a villain in like two movies ago? What the hell is going on? And what's happening is like they're rebooting and retconning and playing games with this crap to the point where very intelligent people can't track who's the hero and who's the villain anymore.
0: Oh, the retconning here is incredible because um, I think one of the problems they faced is that when they were doing these movies and they were set like in the late 60s early 70s a few years ago um, Magneto and Xavier were like grown men in what was like 20 or more years prior to this and they're depicted as not really having age at all and everything's just kind of shifted around. The backstory is kind of there and kind of not and it's like wow, this is, this like is almost, it's an older school version of retconning and having messy timelines because I think that Marvel, for instance, Marvel's very canny about this. this is what they're good at. This is, they manage this stuff all very well. They have an extended plan, you know, reaching into the past and going into the future. And this is just sloppy. Oh yeah. And confusing. Yeah. Well, I, that's another point I wanted to touch on though is cause like I was thinking about this might be a complicated point, so so I for, forgive me for rambling here. I often do that. But um, it, it's obviously, we all know economically, uh, platform capitalism as it's called, what people want is for us to be paying ongoing rents to platforms, uh, whether it's Amazon Prime, Netflix, uh, Apple Music, uh, our podcast. <laughs> um, there you, you go. Know, yeah, well, and that's... There's a lot of reasons this this model makes sense uh, if you're on the receiving end of it, but it's it's threatening. It can be convenient in some ways, and it's threatening other things. I mean, it's a real threat to video games because video games are in a really great moment. For instance, for like single player video games at the highest level, triple A level, I would argue, are in a really great moment in a lot of ways. And the biggest threat to their to that sort of moment of flowering for these big budget games is that game companies, EA in particular, but other big companies, they want to make shitty stuff that has like in-game transactions or that you're paying rent to and it's like ah this could get bad. But okay. So what are the implications of so platform capitalism is the thing uh that we're that we're trying to push us to it's it's a you know nothing everything new is old or everything old is new again because it's like well capitalism in its earliest stages was all about seeking rents and a limited number of people owning things and everyone paying rent to them, You know, literally on agricultural estates. And we're kind of moving back to that. Everyone's a rentier in every area of life. right? Everyone's a debtor and a renter. Um, so that's depressing. But I, I want to talk about how that functions, the parallel to that is storytelling, because I was thinking about how my friend and I came out of this movie having not seen all of the past X-Men movies, having not necessarily known what this is building on, having the confusion that you were talking about. But what we both remarked upon that we'd done is that there were these gestures made in the story where we could kind of piece together what we were supposed to have known or what we were supposed to be feeling more particularly. Like there were cues to tell you what you were supposed to feel that you knew were gesturing back to movies you hadn't seen. And that almost worked the same way as those feelings actually being evoked, which is interesting and kind of alienating and scary because it's like there's an emotional rent-seeking, there's an emotional narrative platform that exists out there parallel to the platform business model where it's like you kind of know that you're supposed to be, that this stuff all exists out there somewhere and that's this overarching structure. And if it's just being gestured to, you respond to it as if it's really happening. I don't know if that made any sense, but it's. I think there really is a kind of emotional rent-seeking that happens in stories now where you have these, these long-running continuities. And so one of the really interesting things about Dark Phoenix is it's actually the end of, of a particular uh, you know, narrative platform. Uh, it could no longer seek emotional rents from you. That's it for Science Stark. Stark.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, Connor, we, this is, we have definitely not talked about this advanced, but I do want to talk to you about something in relationship to these movies and the podcast and all of this stuff. Um, Are you quitting I, to work on an X-Men movie? Because if so, you have my blessings. <laughs> They they would have to pay a well actually what I would consider a lot would be chump change so they probably could buy me out but no <laughs> that's not what's happening um, I I don't want to do this anymore and I'm not talking about the podcast uh, what what I'm talking about is we we have been uh, selecting movies and watching them because they are. Uh, they are the big thing in the theater at the moment. Like that that was the determining factor for going to this film. And we both knew it was going to be dog shit. And I, I'm not saying we shouldn't see things that are current because I think we definitely should. That's important. But at the same time, I would like to figure out a way for us to take this conversation and bring it to a place about what should happen. Like, how do we push the direction be- beyond watching the film, getting everybody listening to us and saying, yes, as everyone listening to us know, these guys were assholes and the film was bad.
0: Y- you know what I'm saying? Well, this is interesting um, on a lot of levels. No, I think this is a productive conversation. Uh I don't yeah. know if it should be recorded. <laughs> well, I mean, let's do it. Let's roll with it. I think. I think what's interesting. I think we skipped Avengers Endgame for this exact reason. Yeah. So there has been. We have made certain choices um, on this basis. I actually wanted to see Dark Phoenix. I was curious about it. Okay. I was genuinely interested to see if they actually tried to do anything. I mean, I I find myself curious about Marvel like superhero movies lately because I have generally not gone to a ton of them over the last few years. And it is the case that, so far, having seen several in 2019, for the most part, um, the cynicism that tells you not to go is warranted. However, in the course of doing this podcast, like I don't think either of us necessarily knew that Shazam was going to be good, but we liked it. So I think you have to allow some space for being surprised because there have been some big-budget um, comic book-based movies that I've actually liked. So You're right. And we have seen movies like Us. I wouldn't have taken Us back for love or money. And like even Alita was bad in a very interesting way. Yeah, I think broadly speaking, our reviews of things that are in theaters are have been fruitful. Uh, I do think that Dark Phoenix is a tough one to get enough uh, grist to talk about because, boy, does it end up being a hollow movie. Um, and the only thing yeah. about it... The only interesting thing about it is its own hollowness, I would say. Uh, and so that that's a tough one. So I don't know how we go about forming a policy around this. I do think that skipping something like Endgame was actually a good uh, call because like, when the discourse around something is that overpowering, uh, it just interests me less. But I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think... I think this is part of a larger conversation that, again, we're having this in front of our audience, so welcome everyone. But like, (laughs) um, we are broadly speaking a sci-fi podcast. We've talked about branching out into other genre fiction. I mean, really, what we are is a narrative arts podcast, and we're going to do whatever we feel like doing. But yeah, I mean, I I guess all I would say, all I would say, is like, I don't necessarily want to institute firm policies around this. in the future, if you really if you really don't want to see something like Dark Phoenix, but I want to see it, maybe I'll just go do it. Um, well, and you know, that may be,
1: on some level, what happened here is I got through this movie and I started thinking about what I wanted to talk about with it in particular, and I just got weary. I mean, it's that hollowness you're talking about. There's so little meat on this bone, and... Then I started thinking, well, like what, like these studios, there's all these other properties they could go out and pick that are so interesting and vibrant out of the independent market. And oh God, I don't know if I want them to do that either. Like they're already doing such an efficient job of of harvesting my childhood for little scraps of things to sell to me that like, I I don't want them to dig deeper. Like what if they take Alan Moore's Prometheus and do a thing about it? I mean, just thinking about that makes me want to throw up. So, like, I guess what I'm saying to you, Connors, I don't know what I'm saying to you, but uh, certainly this movie made me ha- unhappy in a way that previous movies we've watched have not. I felt like... Um, I, I felt like they were going to such an effort to monetize things and were completely in, uninterested in whether I was happy about it or not. At least I feel like with other films we've seen, the goal was to entertain me. I don't know what the hell this was.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, the movie that I felt that way about was Captain Marvel, I think. Uh, the more I think about Captain Marvel, the more I dislike that movie. Um, <laughs> at, at least so, – Yeah, go ahead. Did you see Endgame then? No, I didn't. I don't really care if I do either. Okay. Because, like,
1: the moments where she came back, it's like there was definitely, like, okay, now the row of women are going to dive against the enemy and it's going to be unstoppable. Just, like, everything that you could imagine that would make you mad about Captain Marvel happened.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, look, I'll give people a preview here. I have engaged Dear Trevor of No Cartridge to come on the show at some point. And we're going to talk about Adorno, who, for those of you who don't know, uh, Adorno is a Marxist theorist who wrote a lot about uh, mass culture in the sort of immediate post-war era. He was a German expat who ended up in L.A. So he was like a very highbrow German Marxist academic who ended up in, you know, <laughs> mid-century Hollywood. Spoiler alert, he was not a big fan <laughs> of American mass culture. Um So we're going to talk about him and the sort of the all-encompassing pessimism, sort of especially particularly Marxist pessimism around the culture industry. Uh, And what Pete and I have been talking about in some ways is an incarnation of that pessimism. Um, Twitter, my corner of Twitter is deluged in it. Uh, and I think there's a lot of good justifications for being both pessimistic and cynical and weary of something like Dark Phoenix. There's all kinds. And I mean, we touched on some of the ways it's even outright sinister, like the way that it deals with state power, for instance. Um, and all that is very valid. I also think though, my, my counterpoint would be the reason I'm doing a science fiction podcast. We've already established many times that, uh, (laughs) my pedigree is a snobbish one and if they're one of the most succinct ways to describe why I'm doing a podcast like this is because I reject Adorno. I reject this idea that I need to be encompassingly cynical about mass culture. I really do. I profoundly reject it actually. So I'm always interested in trying to find where is it in mass culture that, uh, that, you know, what, what are the interesting things that are going on? Dark Phoenix doesn't really give me a lot of a lot of room for that. I, I, I truly think the only the only thing I would laud about it is accidentally stumbling stumbling into a uh, a convincing depiction of a fairly nihilistic and wayward uh, but but supposedly well meaning rich person. That's a, that's a, that's truly it. Um, but I I want to be very clear here. I reject um sort of overarching pessimism about culture as a whole. I think that that pessimism is most appropriate when it comes to the the most massive mass culture and, and of course superhero movies are number one in that regard. Um, anyway, does that does that make sense?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well and I mean it's um that that tendency in you which I think is considered but it's also natural if that makes any sense like it it's come up in other areas. Like when we were talking about the water knife I would say that that your your outlook has always been to Look for the things that can be embraced, even, even in, even in genre fiction. So it aligns perfectly with the other things you've done and said.
0: Yeah. Thank you for saying that. I mean, I'm this, people are going to see me evolve a lot over the course of this podcast. So don't hold me too much to any single thing that I say, but, um, I'm glad we're having this conversation in front of our listeners and it's very telling that we couldn't even get to 30 minutes without, without having to go away from Dark Phoenix because it is so thin. Um, but I, I, was, I think we said this before, but I'm going to say it again. This podcast is very much a work in progress, and a lot of what we've done so far is kind of jump around, not exactly randomly, but without a whole lot of overarching uh, planning. We just get the guests that we can get, um, and are always shuffling around to figure out what we're doing. And we've already said we're going to start doing some things that are more planned in advance and, and more pushed to kind of meet people where they are and figure out what we can really do best as a podcast, like themed months, that sort of thing. But um, it's very much an experiment. So I, thanks, everyone, for um, you know being there with uh, being here with us as we figure this out. I think that if I learn anything from writing a novel, it's that you're going to spend a lot more time experimenting and just figuring things out than you would ever exp- ever guess. So given that we're only four months into this podcast, I, th- I see this as very, very, very early days. And my hope... Is that we can keep doing this for a long time, and if you want to help us keep doing it for a long time, uh, this would this is a good moment if you're if you're listening to this as a free episode to go ahead and become a patron because that is truly that's the most important thing here. Is Pete and I have to bottom line this, and we have to. Uh, try to make some money on it. It's definitely a side gig, but um please do become patrons. It supports us. We do exclusives, multiple exclusives every month, as you may or may not know. We have a great Discord chat if you're interested in that. It's been a really good community. Honestly, the Discord chat has been I expected it to go well, but it's been phenomenal. Um, but we're gonna keep doing great exclusives for patrons and we're gonna keep doing we're gonna start doing more and better. Um and we, we do care a lot about patrons. And more importantly, patrons are the reason we're able to exist. So I don't know if Pete wants to add anything to that, but but please, yeah. yeah. Uh,
1: in, in, uh, in the spirit of A, us experimenting, and B, us providing things for patrons, one of the things I'm trying to do right now is to develop a series of exclusi- exclusives that pick up a book or pick up an author and go as deep as I possibly can with it by doing readings, talking about my reaction to it, the origin of the author, the nature of the work, all of those things. Um I'm gonna use the wrong word because I can't think of the right word. The wrong word that is coming to mind is pantheon. Like there are a series of writers out there that represent things within the genre. They're personifications of writing tendencies or sets of ideas. And like, as I'm doing this with Connor, one of the things I wanna do with him and also for you, is to get as many of those guys pinned up on the wall so everybody can take a look at it as I possibly can. So I'm going to be doing something on Alistair Reynolds pretty soon, who basically, he took the whole concept of space opera and gave it CPR in 2000. So now space opera is a thing again. It was basically a historical thing before that. You could argue with me, but even if you are arguing with me, you know what I mean. Uh, I'm going to be talking about, uh, Alan Dean Foster, who is not known as one of the titans of science fiction, but if you've ever read a book about a movie, odds are very good you've read a book by Alan Dean Foster because he's done, man, like 10% of the movie to book, uh, books that you used to find in the drugstores. Like, he was just a machine for putting those out, which makes him tremendously important when you're talking about science fiction. I guess what I'm saying here, because I am running a little long, is that I'm really excited about this stuff. It's what I can bring to the table, so I'm going to do it, and I'm going to bring it to you guys as heavily and as quickly as I can, because it really matters to me. And I know Connor has been looking at other things that he wants to bring to the Patreon and to you here. Uh, do you want to talk of any of those now? I mean, you already talked about what you were doing with Trevor, Connor, not to put you on the spot.
0: Oh, I mean, that's going to be the first one that we're going to try. I think I'm going to do a series on literary criticism and theory and think about how ac- the methods um, that academics and scholars have used over time to engage with what I call the narrative arts. Um, Just to sort of like, not because I think this will ever be, this will never be a truly academic podcast, you know, God forbid in some ways, but like,
1: just because. You'd have to kick me out, dude. (laughs) Yeah. Well,
0: I I think that it's, it's just going to be useful for us to make some of that as as accessible as possible to demystify it, to give ourselves as we move forward over hopefully a period of years here with this podcast, uh, to give ourselves some ammunition, um, to do what we need to do. And, and it's, you know, it's fun for me. Like I might just spitballing here, the people that I might want to address in this pod would be people like Stanley Fish, Frank Kermode. I don't know if these names mean anyone to anything to anyone who's listening, but they're they're major literary critics and theorists. Um, So I think that's something that I want to try. But we're going to be doing lots of different stuff. Um, And again. I'm not going to guilt anybody who feels that they can't afford it or just doesn't want to. Like, we're always going to have fun-free episodes. But if you can't afford it and you like the pod, please do consider becoming a patron because, again, every little bit helps us tremendously. And the more patrons that we have, the more we can bring in every month, um, you know, the more we can really commit to making this as good as possible. And part of, that will, part of that will mean fewer episodes where we talk about a movie we don't like for 18 minutes and then talk about the Patreon. But-
1: <laughs> <laughs> I... <laughs> I think it's fine. I, 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 one of the things that I think is very cool about this, what makes it unique is that you and I are coming with such a different tool set trying to attack the same things. and I think that's fun as hell. I'm learning a lot about it. like there is uh, that there, 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 well I'll just there was no chance I was going to engage with any of these literary critics had we not done this together. There was just like somebody, like a a weird uh, literary teaching dude would have had to like kidnap me and tie me to a chair and use dental instruments to have this conversation with me because I was very resistant to it. But here we are like putting this stuff down side by side and seeing where it lines up and stuff. It's, it's a joyous experience for me. It's completely new to what I have done
0: in terms of looking at these books. So, so I'm pumped and I hope our audience is too. That's great to hear, man. Truly. Um, I I think that one of the reasons I'm doing this pod is to remediate this unfortunate divide between people who are really into genre of various kinds and the way that the academy has set itself up as a imposing edifice, which I think is... But I think that, the, I think that the, the arrogance of that has really been a real problem, and it's arguably a major reason why uh, the huma- study of the humanities is in a crisis right now. I'm not going to get too deep on that right just currently. We'll probably have some guests on who can talk to us about that, but... Um, I More and more as I've gone forward, especially being online and seeing all the posturing that happens on Twitter, uh, more and more I I think it's just really important to be generous and capacious with what you do know, to no matter how smart you consider yourself, to be open to learning, to not just set set yourself up as an unassailable authority, to bring people in, to bring people in, to give them credit for being intelligent, to give them credit for being curious. And to engage on those terms. I think that and that's that's what we're trying to build with this podcast, is, is a community where we can do that. Um and again, it's not easy. I, I'm sure that we we stumble at times. Um I will say though that our Discord chat, I think, has done a pretty good job embodying this. And again, yeah, it's something you get access to if you're a patron. So yeah.
1: Awesome. Um well we have two choices here, Connor. We could we could go back to talking about that movie, or we could end it.
0: <laughs> uh, I think we should end this. Thank you, everyone who <laughs> stuck it out. Uh, I wouldn't say see Dark Phoenix unless you really like the X Men. And you might get something out of this if you're really into the X-Men. But if you also if you like the X-Men a lot, you may hate this movie. So probably just don't see it, honestly.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's like getting dental work without the sense of accomplishment.
0: Yeah, uh, I hope that someday someone makes a better X-Men movie than this. That's that's what I'll say for now. Thanks, everyone. Thanks a lot. Yes.